The Holy Gospel according to Matthew, the 18th chapter. Glory to you, Lord. Jesus said to the disciples, If another member of the church sins against you, go and point out the fault when the two of you are alone. If the member listens to you, you have regained that one. But if you are not listened to, take one or two others along with you so that every word may be confirmed by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If the member refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if the offender refuses to listen even to the church, let such a one be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly, I tell you, if two of you agree on earth about anything and ask, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there among them. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We have been reading all summer long from St. Paul's letter to the Romans. It is not, we have discovered, uh, an easy read. But it is a big deal, important read, especially if you're a descendant of Martin Luther, who suggested to his flock that they memorize the whole thing. To know anything about St. Paul and the book of Romans is to know that in it, Paul expansively and passionately and with really long sentences sometimes makes the theological case that we are justified, that is to say we are lined up straight in our relationship with God, we are healed in our in the sin brokenness of our relationship with God, not because we earn such by being good enough, but because by faith we receive such as the absolute gift of grace that it is. Paul's words discovered by a prone to despair spiritually German monk named Martin Luther breathed life and joy and hope into him and then breathed into being the Reformation. Some who heard that marvelous gospel message from both Paul and Luther, the message of that, of that free gift that is ours no matter what we've done, heard that message then to imply that it therefore doesn't matter what we do. As someone I can't remember once put it, God loves forgiving sinners and I love sinning. What a wonderful arrangement. Nothing could be further from the thinking of either Paul or Luther, both of whom are passionate and powerful in their call for Christians and for Christ's church to be at work passionately for good in God's world. It's just that we're many, whereas many who are religious, including some Christians who somehow managed to get here, who seem to think their good works need to be given upward to impress God into loving and rewarding us with a place in heaven. Both Paul and Luther understood that good works are rather to reach not upward but outward, as we, claimed by love and in gratitude for the free gift of God's mercies, become instruments of God's mercies and love for the whole world. For as Luther put it, God does not need your good works. Your neighbor does. Which takes us to this Labor Day weekend, created to honor the vocations of this nation's labor force originally, which Luther actually did long before, centuries before there even was such a thing as a Labor Day, except he took it further. For he understood vocation 
to comprise not just whatever job we might or might not have and get paid for to do in our daily lives, but he rather understood our jobs and our relationships and in fact every situation we face, all of which he understood to be the arenas in which we live out and live into our primary, primary vocation. And that is child of God. Called to love God and to love all whom God loves, not just here on this one hour, on this one day of this week, but on all the hours of all the days of all of our weeks. That often, in one way or another, has ended up working its way as a theme for the entire sermon, what I've preached on Labor Day weekend. This year, however, I felt called to go in a different direction when it comes to living, loving God and our neighbor uh, in our daily lives. I want to consider what it means to live into our vocation as children of God, who as such have dual citizenships. For in addition to being citizens of a nation or kingdom of this world, we are also citizens of the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, which we are promised will one day come in its righteous and just and loving fullness, but in the meantime, it is also meant by God to be a healing and restoring transformative movement in this sin-broken world as we live our lives in the direction of God's righteousness and justice and love every day, which calls us, Paul calls us too at the end of Romans 12, when he says, do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your minds so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. More specifically, on this Labor Day weekend, when we are now 58 days from an election day in this country, Though I realize this could well turn into a fool's errand in the climate of things these days, but nevertheless, I want to consider with you today what our Christian vocation might mean for those of us who are citizens of the United States of America, but simultaneously and way most importantly, citizens of the kingdom of God, among whom, by the way, among whose citizenry, Americans are a minority. My springboard into this topic for today comes from today's reading from Romans 13, where Paul, addressing Christians who at that time were a tiny minority in the Roman Empire, wrote, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those authorities that exist have been instituted by God. Let me begin by telling you that this is a Bible verse, the application of which beyond the context of first century Roman Christians has been debated vigorously and at times adhered to literally awfully. Romans 13 was used to undergird the 1850s Fugitive Slave Act in this country, which required all U.S. citizens to return escaped slaves back to their owners. It was used in Germany in the 1930s and 40s to justify a silent and even complicit response from Christians and churches 
as the malignancy of the Third Reich's kingdom and its ways metastasized throughout Europe. It was cited in the 1980s by reformed Christians in South Africa, my distant Dutch cousins, who used Romans 13 to argue against opposition to the shameful blight of apartheid. And it was quoted by then Attorney General Jeff Sessions in a speech in Indiana just two years ago to criticize Christians and churches who were vigorously opposing this government's mandate and practice of separating immigrant children from their families at this country's southern border. Being a citizen of two countries, apparently, turns out, can be a complicated thing. Personally, I think too many Christians and churches have married themselves too closely to the ways of the kingdoms of this world, and in so doing have done more harm than good in many ways to the ways and the purposes of the kingdom of God. For to paraphrase uh, Philip Yancey, whenever in history the church joined itself in marriage to the state, almost inevitably and almost immediately its focus turned to wielding power rather than dispensing grace. Friedrich Nietzsche, expressing a sentiment not unrelated to that, said, be careful, lest in fighting the dragon you become the dragon. Being a citizen of two kingdoms surely can be complicated, and I'm sure I cannot change that for you over me or for me for these next 58 days and the days and the years beyond that. I do want to say and say unequivocally that these words from Paul are patently and absolutely not a one-size-fits-all prescription for all times and all places and all citizens and all Christians and all governments. I say that as confidently as I do because of the fact that the same Paul who wrote these words about submitting to government authority was later executed by the government for his disobedience to its authority. For he would obey their laws, it turned out, until they were at cross purposes with the highest allegiance he knew, which was, which was his allegiance to his Lord. And so when Roman law demanded he name Caesar, son of God, to be worshipped, he did not submit. Besides, in spite of the fact that Mr. Sessions quoted Romans 13 to tell Christians in this country that we are commanded by Scripture to be obedient and submit to this government's views of immigration policies and practices, in fact, the very founders of this country said something exactly different when they found Romans 13 being thrown at them by literalist religious conservatives telling them that Romans 13 meant loyalty, submission to the British throne. Those who led a revolution against that throne, the founders of these United States, argued instead that governments and rulers instituted by God had an obligation of their own, therefore, to rule according to the desires of God, and that rulers who don't are not to be submitted to, but opposed. For the Bible, they said, is clearly on the side of freedom, not tyranny, 
And so rulers who deny and oppose freedom are tyrants whom faithfulness insists we not obey, but resist. The notes in my Lutheran study Bible say a similar, similar thing by pointing to the fact that in Romans 13 verse 4, Paul says that a government is to be obeyed because it is God's servant, which that note says implies that the government in turn is to act as God's servant or they are not worthy of obedience. Which would be to say that God does indeed institute or even ordain, if you will, the office or vocation of government for our good. But if individuals in those offices violate the trust which has been entrusted to them as holders of those offices, then their rights to obedience aren't rights anymore. And so citizens of God's kingdom are then called into the realm of speaking up in resistance or standing up in peaceful civil disobedience or if you happen to agree with the logic of this nation's founders in extreme cases it might even be understood to mean a revolutionary war of disobedience. Dietrich Bonhoeffer who struggled these struggles and more as he watched his German church stand down to and even complicitly cooperate with Hitler's sin, said that contrary to Christians who say we shouldn't be critical of government because Romans does say that government does come from God, Bonhoeffer said the exact opposite is true. For there are times, he said, when the Church of Jesus Christ needs precisely to resist so that the government can grow into its calling to be the servant of God it is called to be. Add that to the fact that we in this country have been entrusted with the freedoms we have, including free speech, freedoms others have sacrificed and died to entrust to us. And I want to maintain that when our nation's leaders do not honor the trust with which they have been entrusted, speaking up and speaking out in opposition is both faithful and patriotic. And in my mind, that surely includes things like taking to the streets or taking a knee in the face of racial injustice. My fellow Americans and my brothers and sisters in Christ as citizens of both the kingdoms in which we hold citizenship, we need to hold our leaders and those campaigning to be our leaders to a higher standard of truth-telling when they speak up or speak out or post or tweet. Leadership that is honorable and therefore worth being treated honorably speaks truthfully. And we must demand that and stand up against untruth. We too, when we speak up or speak out or post or tweet, must do so honorably, truthfully. A friend of mine I love uh, lives politically to the left of me. He posted a Facebook post a week or two ago, which if you're, um, if you're not a fan of the president, and I mean, I'm not, I'm not, that's not a secret. Uh, that post was almost delicious in the dig 
that it took at him. It was, it was, and it was funny, it, and it absolutely enforced. It proved every much everything we all, everybody who doesn't like this president knows is true about him, except for one thing: what the Post said wasn't true. It was funny, just wasn't true, and it only took me just a couple of clicks to discover that. I. Gently, I think, uh, posted a reply to my friend's post pointing out that and, and saying, though I didn't, I didn't use Nietzsche's words, but I could have, uh, if you're fighting the dragon of untruth by posting things that aren't true, you're becoming the dragon. I did the same thing a while back with an old high school classmate and then Facebook friend who lives to my right. Actually, lives and breathes to my right, my very far right. From where the view from there, she is convinced that Donald Trump is absolutely God's gift to this country, and he needs to be reelected because Joe Biden is going to take God absolutely out of this country. And for the love of Jesus, God bless America, we need to prevent that. She posted a post which surely those who agree with her found delicious in the dig that it took at Joe Biden with a sideswipe of Kamala Harris along the way. And it was funny, I'm sure. And it reinforced so many things that those on my right know is true about them. It's just that once again, the post wasn't true. I posted on her page, perhaps in hindsight, not as gently as I should have, because I can get pretty darn worked up when Jesus is brought into the lying. So I posted on her page that we will not and we cannot advance the kingdom of the one who said, I am the truth, by saying things that aren't true. Lies, even hilarious ones, and even so mightily more when they are lied in the name of Jesus, may advance a kingdom. But the kingdom advanced is not his. Again, I did not quote Nietzsche, but I could have. The kingdom advanced by untruth is not the kingdom of God, but the kingdom of the dragon. She did not respond uh, well except to unfriend me <laughs> and, and block me on Facebook. I want to be clear I have no expectation that my friends and my fellow Americans and my brothers and sisters in Christ should all agree. I think actually it's important that sometimes we don't agree, because sometimes that can be the only way to get to new places that are good places, but which we never would have found our way to if we had all agreed. But we do need to reclaim the ability to disagree respectfully, which respectfully cannot be done if the truth is not at the center of the conversation. Speaking the truth, including speaking the truth to power, may be a threat, an actual a threat to some in power. But speaking the truth is not a threat to democracy. It is a cornerstone of democracy. And two, speaking the truth, including speaking the truth to other believers, may be a threat to some things that they believe or that I believe. But it is not a threat to the king of the kingdom who's, who is named truth. Which means that any more genuinely, any turn generally, any move genuinely in the direction of truth,
even if it feels threatening to something you've always believed, is, in fact, is not a turn away from him, but a turn toward him. A turn, on the other hand, to untruth is a turn to precisely not him, which is not a place you want to go, which is why I find it not all at all coincidental that when it comes to the kingdom of not God, the kingdom of the opposite of God, Jesus named its prince the father of lies. Speak the truth. Insist on the truth. Hold yourselves and one another and your leaders accountable to the truth. And because we do call Jesus Lord, speak the truth boldly, but also with bold love. For as Paul said at the end of our reading for today, every commandment there is, every rule there is, every constitution and declaration and amendment there is, if it is of God, is summed up in these words. Love your neighbor as yourself, for love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. My fellow Americans, my brothers and sisters in Christ, speak the truth, insist on the truth, love one another, and may God bless America and Christ's church and your neighbor through you. Amen.